Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. Today's Spirit in Action guests are joining me in person in St. Joseph, Minnesota, on the campus of the College of St. Benedict. We're spending a week here as part of the Friends General Conference Gathering, an event that happens yearly, migrating across the country, but in Minnesota this week. There are always lots of activists and musicians as part of the thousand-plus folks who attend, and today we'll be talking with two of them, both very involved in earth care as it plays out on the international scene. Shelley Tannenbaum was an observer at the COP21, COP21, Paris Climate Change Conference in December of 2015, and Judy Lum has been part of two previous COP gatherings that led up to this year's fruitful sessions. Judy Lum has also worked with large multinational gatherings of Quakers on environmental and climate change concerns, with a very significant step forward being taken at one such assembly early in 2016. Both Shelley and Judy are part of Quaker Earth Care Witness, and Shelley is the General Secretary of QEW for the past couple years, drawing also on her environmental education and work for 20 years as an environmental scientist and advocate. We're particularly fortunate to have Judy here with us, considering that it meant that she had to leave her island home in Belize to be part of this gathering. Best to get talking to them now. I'm pleased to have here today Shelley Tannenbaum and Judy Lum. Judy, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you back. It was four years ago that I talked to you about violence in Kenya and the book that you wrote on that. People can find that out on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. And Shelley, thank you. This is your first time on Spirit in Action. That's correct. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And Shelley, since it's your first time here, we'll start with you. You were at Paris for the climate change talks, for the climate agreement that we've been working toward as a world. How do you feel now? I feel that it went actually a little better than we had anticipated just prior to the agreement, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. There was a lot that went on in the years leading up to the Paris Agreement, and I can say more about that if you'd like me to, that are important to note that got us to where the Paris Agreement was possible. People were talking about trying to produce an agreement for the past at least 21 years. The Conference of the Parties was COP21 because they were working for all those two decades plus to find an agreement. 
And so I assume those bookends perhaps are Kyoto and now the Paris Accords? Yeah, that's, that's true. That's roughly 21 years. We thought we were going to have a, an agreement in Copenhagen in 2009, and that fell apart. So that was a great disappointment to all of the countries and the world. So do you have a sense of why 2009 fell apart and why December of 2015 actually something got worked out? What was the difference between those six years? There have been a couple of things happening, or actually lots of things happening over the last several years that I think made it possible for this agreement to happen and make it possible for all the changes we're seeing. So some of the things that have been happening prior to Paris are extremely important to note. And the first is that renewable energy has become cheaper than fossil fuels and faster to implement the nuclear power. That wasn't true five years ago. It's true now. Solar is something that used to have a pretty long payback period. I put solar on my roof 10 years ago. There was a 13-year payback at the time, and a lot of people thought we were crazy to spend the money to put solar on our house and spend that much money. Now the payback is about five to eight years. It's, uh, the price is much lower, and solar installers can't keep up with the demand. So there's a real change there. Divesting from fossil fuels is something that... A couple years ago, people saw it as lunacy, and now it's become reality, at least amongst the vanguard of investors. So there's a real change there as well. Civil society, a couple of years ago, it felt like there were just a few of us working on this issue in, the, in civil society, and people were either unaware of the magnitude of the problem or unwilling to engage. I was at the Climate March in New York in September of 2014, and I helped organize the faith contingent for that march. We didn't know until that day how many people would be there. It was amazingly exciting to see the kind of turnout that there was. It was incredibly inspiring and uplifting, and it felt like a real turning point in that civil society was waking up to the magnitude of the problem. We sat and waited on the street for five or six hours to start the march because it was so big. We were hoping for 50,000, maybe 100,000 people, and we ended up with 400,000. So to me, that's another example of how much things have changed. Last year, the Pope issued Laudato Si, his encyclical on climate change. And it was phenomenally moving to me to read words from the Pope that I could have written where he talked about... Because our, you speak, because <laughs> you speak into, uh, whatever, you speak Latin. <laughs> That's what it is. No, but it just the words that are on my heart, I never expected the Pope to be saying those words about how we need to be living in a different relationship with the natural world and how much we need to consider equity when we do any of the kind of work we do in the world. And it was beautiful to see unexpected, and I think people of faith paid a lot of attention. He, he wasn't alone. Most of the leaders of major religions, Bartholomew of the Greek Orthodox Church has said similar words. If you go across the board, most of the major religions are coming out with similar kinds of statements. And that didn't happen four or five years ago. That's relatively new. So I'm seeing amazing progress along these lines. Let me just ask you a couple of the details about that, Shelley. You talk about the march, 400,000 people. 
I didn't see much of a splash of that in the media. It was almost not reported, except for people like Northern Spirit Radio. I think these things don't get out there, which is one of the reasons that community radio or alternative radio is so important. What news did you see? Did you feel it was fairly represented? I felt that it wasn't fairly represented. You're absolutely right. The media didn't pick up on it very much, but it was incredibly inspiring for the people who were there who are mostly the activists of the world. And I think it's boosted our spirits enough to keep doing this kind of work. But it's also very telling that it was it was reported, but it wasn't reported very widely. And a lot of people who weren't involved in the movement may not have heard about it, which is very unfortunate. And you, Judy, is the news reaching you? I mean, things like the climate march, the stuff coming from the Pope. You're down in Belize, where you live. Is the news penetrating outside the United States better than inside the United States? Not about that particular march. We get cable, you know, so we get CNN like everybody else and MSNBC. And people that are interested listen to Democracy Now! and PBS on their computers. So, so we're not so isolated as we used to be. So we got the news about the march only from Democracy Now! because they were covering it very well. Mm-hmm. Your news source is still really very important. Something I'm going to comment about right away, Judy, your voice is... Actually, when I recorded you, I think you were sitting on a hillside or something in Belize, which probably helps. Are you down in Belize for health reasons? Is that what took you down there? It's why I went. It's not why I stay. <laughs> but I was in my hammock when I was speaking four years ago. But now I'm in the in the U.S. for a visit. And your voice sounds different. People might not be able to guess your age from it. You probably sound older to some of our listeners than you are. What is the condition that you have? They call it spastic dysphonia. just means that they don't know what causes it, but the vocal cords are kind of tight and don't want to work. So it makes me sound really old. But you're actually young and vibrant, I'm, right? I'm actually 73. Well, you're still young and vibrant, like I said. <laughs> As is true for you, Shelley, what the Pope wrote is very inspirational. I grew up Catholic, actually, and sometimes this Pope makes me wish I was Catholic. I still I couldn't do it now because I'm so used to Quaker ways. Well, Shelley, you were there for the Paris Agreement, the Paris Accords. They're, they're being worked out. And I still really do not have any kind of an idea how you put this together, which which people are official delegates who can be there. Do they accept any rabble of the world? Can anybody be present? How does one get to speak, perform? Is this all governmental leaders who are controlling things? Can you give me the broad overview of how this thing is structured? Sure. It's fairly restricted in the actual negotiations The Conference of the Parties was set up in Paris so that there was a building, an exhibit hall that was open to the public. You did have to go through security to enter it, but anyone could enter, and there were display booths and speakers and that sort of thing. But then there was a completely separate building that was for the delegates and for the observers. And I was there as an observer from Quaker Earthcare Witness. We are an accredited NGO and we were allowed to send two people to the conference to observe the plenaries, to mingle in the halls. We weren't allowed to attend the smaller meetings that might have been with a couple of delegates negotiating over particular points. 
but we were allowed to be present. We had essentially the same privileges as press would have. The press were also limited. You couldn't just walk in with press credentials. You had to apply for them ahead of time and be approved. Similarly for us as NGOs, we had to submit names of the people we wanted to attend, and then we were told yes or no if we could send those people to the conference. We did enter in a separate building. We went through security again. I was able to attend some of the plenaries, but I didn't just attend the conference, the official conference, because at the time there was so much going on in Paris that too much that was so exciting to be part of that I wouldn't have wanted to spend my two weeks at the conference just attending the official conference. There were concerts, there were events, there were workshops, there were art exhibits all over the city, and people came from all over the world to be part of it, to see the the level of engagement from the public on these concerns. It was very exciting and heartening. At one point, I was an ally of the indigenous people of the world when they floated down the Seine in their kayaks. There was a day that I spent with the Women's Earth Climate Action Network, where women from all over the world came to talk about what's going on in their communities and the kind of climate action work they're engaged in. So it it was a beautiful thing to see that combined with the official conference of the parties. It sounds like it could be a lot of fun there. You probably ate some good crepes and other wonderful French food while you were there, or maybe not. Of course. I tried to eat a croissant at least once a day. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What's the environmental footprint of a croissant? (laughs) I do wonder about such things occasionally. It doesn't necessarily stop me. It's probably less than a hamburger. Well, since I'm a vegetarian, it's kind of easy to Mm -hmm. do that. So some more about the process that's used as part of this decision-making. You've already referred to the back rooms. That's what I would call them. The people were, were, were the folks who smoke cigars and they meet in those and make their deals out of the public view. Is everything done by majority votes, or how is this all done? Is this all people just nations individually ratify, or how does this actually get decided? How do we know that everybody agreed, or how do we know what decision is made, and how do we know how many people are participating in it? The decision was actually made by consensus, and all of the parties who attended agreed with this particular agreement, but that didn't mean their countries automatically signed on. It meant that they were willing to take it back to their capitals, and the capitals then had to formally go through whatever process was involved to then come and sign the agreement, which happened in April. And then there's more countries signing on. I think we're now up to about 180 of the 195 countries who participated have formally signed on by now, and the others will probably follow suit. They just haven't gone through all of the formal process that whatever is happens in their country. They need to follow a certain formality. But the agreement itself is not legally binding. This is due to the intransigence of the United States Congress, where we knew that the Congress would never have signed on to something like this, given the current makeup of Congress. So the agreement was designed so that it would not be legally binding. The United States wasn't the only country where there was a problem, but it's probably, it is the 
biggest and most significant country where this would have been a problem. So the agreement is completely voluntary on the parts of the country, but they've all committed themselves to certain goals. There are a couple good things about the agreement and a couple bad things. Uh, The good thing is, of course, that we had 195 countries agree to something like this the first time in over two decades, that first time ever that we've reached a climate change agreement. The other piece of good news is that the countries agreed to ratchet up their goals. They've committed to nationally determined indices of the emissions they're going to limit over the next five years, but they've agreed to make that emission reduction more stringent every five years. And that's critically important because the goals that they've set right now will actually put us on a path of limiting global warming to 2.5 to 3.5 degrees Celsius, and that's not enough. If they didn't have those goals, we would be on a path of 4 to 7 degrees global warming. So it's very important that we at least have this interim set of goals but it will never take us to where we want to be. So having that ratcheting up mechanism is very important. Does that mean that there's also going to be another conference like this five years hence or something like that? There's going to be another conference like this next year in Marrakesh, Morocco. These conferences have been going on every year for the past 21 years. They've set a goal, I think, I believe it's 2020, when they'll send in their new set of emission goals. But they will continue to meet every year as an international conference. And there are lots of details of the agreement that they're going to be working out over the next five years. One of the things that was extremely important about the conference was when we went into the conference, people were hoping that the goal of limiting global warming to 2 degrees C would be part of the agreement. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was asking for that. James Hansen, the climatologist, was asking for that. 350.org was asking for that. We ended up much better. We ended up with an agreement that put out at least as an aspirational goal to limit global warming to one and a half degrees C. And the reason that came about was that the island nations knew if we didn't aim for that limit to global warming, they would literally be sunk. They are losing ground rapidly. Judy, I'm sure, can tell us more about that. I think she's currently living at three feet above sea level and on her island. While I was there, I heard the representative from Santa Lucia, an island in the Caribbean, who is speaking on behalf of all of the island nations, say that And he had great emotion in his voice when he said this. He said he felt like it was the first conference of the parties, the first COP, where the island nations had both been heard and action had been taken. So it's wonderful to see that that goal is there. We don't have the commitments to meeting it yet, however. When you say we don't have the commitments, that means that the nations haven't signed on, done their promise? Or what, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that the commitments that the nations have made so far will actually take us to 2.5 to 3.5 degrees C. So they have to actually, within the next five years, find a way to make their commitment even stronger so that we have any hope of getting to 1.5 or limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C. Can you give me a little bit more feel of what it was like on the ground in Paris in the sessions? Is this where world leaders get up and speechify or impassioned cries here and someone saying, well, we need to be reasonable. What kind of discussion goes on there? 
Actually, the first day, that's exactly what happened. I didn't even stay for it because I knew that's all it would be. Would be it was the day for the heads of state to come and speak, and that's exactly what they did. They all gave these lofty speeches, but you knew that that wasn't where the negotiating was going on. However, it was important to have the heads of state come there, state publicly that they're hoping for a very strong agreement. So even though it was predictable and we all knew that that wasn't where the real negotiating was going to happen, it was still an important part of the conference. And then they leave it to their head of their delegation in um, the United States case. It was Secretary Kerry. Secretary Kerry was there for most of the conference. There was also a head of the delegation. So the details of it get worked out, in not in public, I would say, though there's a certain amount that happens in the large plenaries as well. And some of the important part is when they state their overall goals, and then you can continue to bring that back to them, as this is what you said you were hoping for. We're going to move to speak to Judy Lum pretty soon, but first I have a couple more questions for you, Shelley. You have an important role with the organization called Quaker Earth Care Witness, yet you were there as an observer. And I'm going to be talking about this small subset of the population of the globe, but a tiny subset, which is called Quaker, but I'm going to use this as an example of what's happening in the wider world, in particular people of faith, how they're addressing one of the great crises of our generations. So my question is, how many Quakers were there? You're there as an observer. Were there those inside the rooms as participants, or are all the Quakers just observers? As far as I know, all the Quakers were observers. I was there as part of Quaker Earth Care Witness with another colleague from QEW. Quaker United Nations office, working out of Geneva, has been following climate change issues for the last several years, and they follow this issue very closely, and they sent three people there. And there were a few other people from a smattering of other organizations. So we were really just a handful of Quakers who were there observing. Did that feel like a significant drop in the bucket or not? (laughs) I'm not sure how massive this is. Was this like being at Super Bowl, just dwarfed amongst all the people in the seats? You know, what I don't know is how many people were actually at the COP compared to people who came to Paris for this. So I don't know how to answer your question. It did feel like we were a fairly small number. But what I could say in answer to your question is... We work as allies with a lot of other faith organizations and a lot of other NGOs in working towards policies that will work both at the international, national, and local level. So it didn't feel like we were this lone voice there. We had many other colleagues there, people we work with day to day, month to month. It felt like we were part of a coalition of faith-based community working on these concerns. Within the building, when you're observing things, are you organized by country or by denomination or by organizational structure? I'm not, I'm not sure. How, who were you sitting with when you were there? Physically, who were you sitting with? There, there wasn't any kind of organization like that. Just wander in and find a bleacher seat? Yes. Judy's actually been to a cop as well. Uh, yes. Yeah, there. Well, Judy Lum, we haven't been talking to you very much. You've been to this kind of thing before. What's been your experience of it? Who have you been there with? What's been the physical layout? 
I went um, when it was in Cancun in uh, 2010, and then I went to Durban, South Africa in 2011. I was fascinated with the process. Each of the rooms is set up where the delegations, the parties, are in the front of the room. And they each have a microphone and a button to push if they want to speak. And the, the convener, this is all meetings, side meetings where they're negotiating particular sections, the general meeting when they're making the final decisions. Every meeting has the same setup. And then those of us who were observers, they had a few rows in the back where we were sitting. One of my favorite times was the country reports, because each country gave their report about how they've been doing, what they've been experiencing. And when, this was a few years ago, but when Canada made the, it wasn't the prime minister, it was a secretary that was giving the Canadian report. A group of Canadian young people had t-shirts on that said, turn your back on Canada, because Canada was not cooperating in any way at that time. And they they stood right behind me, all turning their back on Canada. And pretty soon the security came and escorted them out. Has Canada come around since then? Yes. <laughs> Before Justin Trudeau? No. <laughs> No. We needed Justin in office to do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was incredibly important that the shift in government occurred before the December COP. If you know anything about the Harper government, they were essentially climate deniers, and they didn't want to have anything to do with this agreement. When Trudeau was elected just a few weeks before the beginning of the conference, which was November 30th to December 15th, uh, he appointed Catherine McKenna, his environment minister, to participate in the conference, and she was instrumental in helping to make it happen. So, you know, with that one change in government, it was incredibly significant that that happened and extremely helpful. You know, one little detail that we can miss, at the United Nations, when people speak, I think everything's translated, people have on headsets, what language was this happening in? Was there translations going on? How, or is it all of this polyglot of languages going around? It is a polyglot of languages, but the president of the COP was Laurent Fabius from France. He's their environment minister, I believe. And he spoke in French, deliberately. At one point, he got so excited. He speaks incredibly good English. And at one point, he was so excited about what was happening, he started speaking in English, because I believe when he's not in the public eye, people will understand him more if he speaks English. And he started speaking in English, and then he immediately corrected himself and said, in French, I am French, and I need to be proceeding in French. French. But everybody is given a set of headphones, and you can choose amongst the five uh, UN languages which one, and it's an immediate, simultaneous translation. That sounds pretty incredible. It was. <laughs> it was incredible. It was the first time I had attended one of these UN conferences, and it was quite amazing to sit there listening to seeing the person speaking and then hearing in your ear what they're saying. It sounds like, Judy, that you've been involved with this number of years. You've been to the yearly meetings of this group, the COP 15, 16, 17, 18, I don't know how many years. Do you have some sense that observers, and particularly the Quaker observers, have in actually making a difference in the outcome? Well, a few years ago, the Quaker United Nations organization decided they really needed to work with climate change. 
And because Quaker Earth Care Witness already was certified, we set up their credentials to come in through Quaker Earth Care Witness the first time they went. And then I guess they've got their own credentials now. But what the Quaker UN organization does is they work by quiet diplomacy. They have areas, I mean, for various different issues that come up. They invite people to private dinners, negotiators, and that's what they did with this beginning really just about three years ago in 2013. They began having dinners on climate change and inviting the negotiators. Now, because I live in a very small country, I know the negotiator for Belize that's been there from the beginning of the negotiations. And I connected him. I sent an email and said, you should meet each other. I connected him with the Quaker ones that were doing the the quiet diplomacy. Then after the whole Paris thing happened and there was an agreement and everybody was ecstatic and Belize, he was on the news. And so I just sent him an email and, and said, thanks. And he wrote back and said, well, thank you so much for connecting me with the Cuno people because he, I think that quiet diplomacy, those dinners really did make a difference in the outcome. Well, one of the reasons I thought it was important to have you here today, Judy, for this interview is because you participated in something else. And part of the magic of these agreements is how do they actually get executed, carried out into the world, and change people's lives in substance? Because governments are used to making lofty promises and not achieving much out of them. Uh, We hear that in each election year. So part of converting this into actuality is the various groups, NGOs, as well as governments that go out and implement things. You were part of this worldwide Quaker gathering that happened in Peru. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. This nationwide Quaker gathering, and we should mention that this group of Quakers includes a wide range. It's not just what is usually thought of as liberal Quakers, uh, the kind of variety that all three of us are. But it's uh, program Quakers, Quakers with pastors, and some of them called evangelical Christians. And it's a much wider spectrum than just what the three of us represent you were at a world gathering of this group. Could you talk about that, in particular about the piece that deals with climate change? Yes, I actually have been to two of those world gatherings. The one in 2012, it was at Kabarak University in Kenya. Two years before that time, this is this is the Friends World Committee on Consultation, which the, the consultation is bringing all different brands of Quakers together, which is a, a very wide range, as you said. Before Cabarack, two years before, they send out uh, queries to all Quakers of all kinds to talk about what they think we need for the future. And there was a, a group at Cabarack in 2012 then that took all this information and put together a call. We call it the Cabarack Call. And it's a very, very well-stated document and represents input from every corner. And they're Quakers all over the world. And most of the ones in far-flung places like India and Kenya and and Central America and South America 
have all started from evangelical Quakers who have gone out. Some in Kenya was in the 1890s and in uh, Central America in the 1920s. So they tend to be evangelical because there were evangelical Quakers that started them. And to have such a broad group come up with a statement that's very clear that it's our obligation to care for the, the earth to care for God's creation, and what are we going to do about it? It was a pretty miraculous time. Having been present for two of those worldwide conferences of Quakers, and again, I'm looking at this as just a microcosm of the various faiths on the globe. Can you picture then maybe a wide-spectrum gathering of Baptists or a wide-spectrum gathering of evangelical Christian churches, Pentecostal churches. Can you imagine them doing a similar process? Is this in any way positively predicting that there's possibilities for people to come together? Do you have any sense of that at all, Judy? I can't speak for experience with other denominations, but I hope that it's a model. And as you know, Quakers work from the grassroots up without authority. So that's why the, the cabaret call was so significant, because it came from the grassroots. Maybe you should spell that out a little bit. When you say from the grassroots up without authority, what are you actually saying about how we organize? Because a lot of people won't understand because they're used to the Pope says, and it comes down from that way. Well, the Religious Society of Friends is uh, non-creedal, which means there's not some set of words that everybody has to say that they all agree to. And the organization is there's no authority. It's, uh, what do they say, priesthood of all believers. And so all decisions are made actually beyond consensus, a sense of the meeting. Everyone has to agree to a decision. There's no pope telling us what we're supposed to believe. You mean that Barry Crosno is not the pope of the Friends General Conference? <laughs> he's, a, he's a servant leader. Do you have any perspective, Shelley, on how the fact that Quakers are going through some of this decision-making, how this might affect, relate to, or in some way have synergy with other groups, other religious groups? Absolutely. I think it's an issue that can unite faiths beyond theology. We're all in this together. It's a global problem. It has to do with equity, with morality. I've seen more action uh, in interfaith groups being energized by this concern. Some of the people I've talked to here at the FGC conference are from Alaska, and they have been having amazing conversations and actions with other faith groups that they've struggled in the past to create good cohesive coalitions. And now on the issue of climate change, they're not only having dialogue, but they're actually working on projects together with other faith groups. In my community, I come from Berkeley, California, and I work closely with, I'm not a member of Berkeley Meeting. My meeting is Strawberry Creek, also in Berkeley. Berkeley Meeting has formed a partnership with their neighbor across the street, the Mormon Church, and we've sponsored a breakfast to invite the neighbors to talk about climate issues and what we can do at the local level. Theologically, extremely different faith communities, but the issue of climate change is uniting the Mormons and the Quakers in Berkeley. 
That's exciting, and it's it's not a marriage of interests that one might have anticipated. Judy, let's come back to you. You have participated, you said, in two of these big international conferences of Quakers, and you talked about one that happened in Kenya, but the more recent one that happened in Peru, I don't think you filled us in on what happened there. Okay, it was in Pisac, Peru, in this January, and there were some 300 people there from all different uh, Quaker branches, and they had four different consultations groups that met to provide the output of the conference. One of those I went to was assigned to follow up on the Cabaret call. What are we going to do? Where are we on responding to climate change and, and what are we going to do? Cabaret call is actually stated a little broader than climate change. It's, it's care of creation. So 60 of us met for, I don't know, three sessions, two hours, and considered this question. What are we going to do in light of the Paris Agreement? And what are Quakers going to do? We looked at what do we do as individuals? What do we do as a local monthly meeting? And what should our yearly meetings be doing? And what should we be doing globally? And they wrote a an agreement, I mean, a, a, a document, a minute is the way Quakers do that, and assigned a group of young adult friends to do the editing because it's their future. And they made a list of things they wanted. They wanted every yearly meeting to take two concrete actions in regard to climate change in the next year and report on them so we all know what they're doing. They want everybody to consider how they invest funds because it, Quaker organizations and Quaker meetings have funds to do their work and they need to figure out how to invest it. So the larger organization, Friends World Committee for Consultation, just just before that meeting had made the decision to divest from all fossil fuels. And they're asking everybody else to invest ethically. So they really are insisting at several different levels that we respond. I'll have more questions for Judy Lum in a moment. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Where do you find us? On the web at northernspiritradio.org. And sometimes, once a year for about a week, I'm here wherever the Friends General Conference gathering meets, and I do interviews with people before a live audience. And so today I have Judy Lum and Shelley Tannenbaum here as my guests. They're both associated with a group called Quaker Earth Care Witness. And I've interviewed Judy before, back in 2012, about violence in Kenya. By the way, that such violence has happened in Kenya is often at least exacerbated, if not caused, by climate change. There's droughts that happen in one area, drive people to another area, and when people bump into other people's, violence usually erupts. So anyway, Judy, I interviewed her back in 2012. This is the first time I've interviewed Shelley Tannenbaum. So if you go to NordenSpiritRadio.org to listen to my programs, you'll hear Judy before, and you can see this program, and you can see bonus excerpts that I'll have from this interview as well. Also on that website, there's a full 11 years of our programs for free listening and download. So you can find many topics and people, things that are very important to you if you go there. You'll find links to people. You'll find Quick Earth Care Witness link out there and others that will be relevant to this program. There's a place for comments. 
Two-way communication is so important. There's also a place to donate. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's not supported by governments. It's not supported by corporations. It's supported by people who believe that getting the word out is important. And media is so crucial, which is why the first thing you should actually do is support your local community radio stations. They're such an important avenue of sharing information in the community. One of the things that we've learned environmentally is that it's so important to act locally, buy locally, think locally. When we communicate as a community, we do our best. So remember to support first your local community radio station. Shelley Tannenbaum, Judy Lum here, both with Quaker Earth Care Witness Judy has been a longtime participant of the processes, of the COP processes, the people working together for global climate change agreements. And Shelley Tannenbaum was at the Paris Accords back in 2015, December. She was there as an observer. I wanted to come back to some things, and I'm not sure if it's you, Judy, or you, Shelley, who wants to answer this. Judy, you live on an island, and when water is arising, this makes a difference to you. And I heard at the conferences, like at Paris, the island nations have a driving concern. This is their life, their existence that's being threatened by global climate change, the warming of the planet. Are there other primary groups pushing? Where is the force coming from? I mean, all of us should be concerned for the massive destruction that maybe is 10, 20, 30 years in the future. A lot of it's happening right now with global storms, the climate chaos that's already happening. But still, a lot of people are not on board. Who is on board? Who's pushing for this? Where is the concern coming from? Shelley? Certainly the the concern that we're seeing from the island nations is because they are being impacted immediately right now. Some of them are already severely impacted. Climate change is a difficult issue for people to focus on, first of all, because it's just so scary that a lot of people want to run away and hide. They don't really want to hear more about it. But second, it's an issue where what we are doing today will impact us for the next four decades. The greenhouse gas emissions we're putting out in the air today will be around for the next 40 years. So we need to act on things today, but we're not going to see the consequences for 40 years. And it makes it a very challenging issue to work on for that reason. We are seeing more and more impacts happening in temperate zones, such as Superstorm Sandy, um, woke up people in the New York and New Jersey area. But people who are at the poles, who are at the equator, they are much more vulnerable, and the impacts they're going to see are much more severe. So it's such a challenging concern because the impacts are going to be global and they're going to be devastating, yet we're not seeing the extent of the devastation today. We're seeing little bits of it. We're seeing Superstorm Sandy. We're seeing Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. Those kinds of storms are going to happen more and more frequently. I can speak from the point of view of Belize. I live on an island. I probably, probably my floor is maybe six or eight feet above sea level. In the 1990s, we began to see some erosion on the beach right in front of where I live. That probably wasn't climate change. There was an airstrip that was built, and it caused some differences in water flow and circulation, which is probably what caused the original. But at the time, the owner of the place where I live built a seawall. 
It looked really high. Nobody else had a seawall. It looked really high. It was, I think it was 1992 that she built the seawall. And now, just this past few months, that high tides are splashing over that seawall and making a little lake behind it. And the people next door that just built a seawall, theirs is a foot higher than the one where I live. So we're, we're actually seeing sea level rise. And it's different in different places, and it Belize is one of the places where it's higher than the global average. The other thing I'd like to say from Belize's point of view is that um, Belize has the Caribbean Community Climate Change Center, the five C's. Several years ago, the Caribbean community, which includes mostly islands, but Belize is part of the Caribbean community. And they decided they needed to have a center where they would do research and figure out their responses and what was coming and everything. And Belize was the, the one, the country that got that center. And they've been doing a lot of wonderful work and getting some support. That's the kind of thing that the developed countries, a place where they can put their support because Belize didn't cause the problem. So it's, it's kind of an exciting place to be. I'm interested for both of you. In, in a moment, I want to talk about what we can do as individuals to support these kind of processes. I mean, again, something's decided in Paris, and it comes down, and there's organizations that take it on. Maybe it's governments. Maybe it's a worldwide group of Quakers. It, it disseminates down to the average people making, trying to make change so that we prevent climate catastrophe. But first, I want to ask both of you, why are you involved in this environmental work? For you, Judy, you just spoke about, you know, you're on an island. Well, it, it's staring you in the face. It's coming over your seawall. Theoretically, you can see the moment when you won't be protected. Is that why you're involved with the Quaker Earth Care Witness? Or is there something else? Because there's an awful lot of people who are still deniers or oblivious to or They've got higher priorities. What gets you involved, Judy, now or historically? Historically, I've always, as an adult, even maybe as a teenager, been concerned about environmental issues. I was in a Presbyterian church when the first Earth Day happened, and we organized the youth group to do the service and focus on environmental issues. So it's, it's not new for me. And what drives you, Shelley? Before I answer that, I want to follow up on something Judy said about the people of Belize did not cause this problem, but they're seeing some of the worst of the consequences. And, and that's an important concept for us to work on, to be aware of, and to bring to everyone's attention, which is climate justice or environmental justice, that generally the people who are most vulnerable and are going to have feel the most impact from climate change are not the people who have traditionally emitted the most greenhouse gases and have not are not the people who have caused the problem. And they usually are the people who have the least resources to deal with it. So people living in low-lying areas like the country of Bangladesh, people living in island nations, people living at the poles, the Alaskans are... I think there's something like 185 villages that are going to have to be moved. One of them is being moved right now, this year, due to sea level rise. So these are people of the world who are going to have to cope with the consequences, have the least resources, and had nothing to do or very little to do with causing the problem. 
and about what motivates you. Is it just because you're a justice worker uh, historically, or what specifically ties you to environmental work? I've always had a connection to the natural world that long before I became a Quaker, there was just something in me that when I was in nature, I felt like I was part of a larger bit of the world than just myself and my family and my friends, that there was a oneness to the community of the world, both other people, other beings, the natural environment. There was something that spoke to me on a very at a very mystical level of just feeling it, that I can't not be involved in this issue. It's part of who I am. I went on to study environmental science, and I worked on air quality for over 20 years as a consultant. So I made this my field of work, though the last couple of years as General Secretary for Quaker Earth Care Witness, I feel like I'm actually living into my calling of being more of an activist on these concerns. It's hard to explain. It's just that for me, it's almost like a matter of faith. This is who I am, and I can't not work work on these concerns. But as a scientist, I understand the significance of the little piece of climate change that we're seeing now, what that's going to mean for the very near future and how it's going to swamp every other concern that I I care about when it comes to war and peace issues, when it comes to equity issues, when it comes to biodiversity issues. They're all going to be swamped by what we're about to see with climate change. And we have a chance to turn what's going to be a very bad situation to keep it from becoming total catastrophe. And that's what I'm hoping we can do. It's going to be bad. It could be worse unless we act now. I think there's a t-shirt in there. It's going to be bad. <laughs> it could be worse. I wish I didn't. I wish I could say, oh, if we do A, B, and C, we'll turn it all around. But that's not true. It's going to be bad, but it definitely could be a whole lot worse if we don't act now. Well, I w- I'd like to have your statement then about how optimistic you do or don't feel. Because it's pretty hard. I mean, some people say, we're going to die anyway, so you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die, right? That's evidently not your perspective. And so how optimistic are you, particularly in light of what happened in Paris? I don't want to think about it in probabilities. I think of it more as even if we have a 10% chance of turning things around, how could we not try? because there is a chance that we can turn things around. I feel like we as individuals, as long as we are able, are called to make the world a better place. So for me, it, it's, it's just a natural that this is what we need to do. This is what I need to do. I see a great deal of possibility for what we can be doing. I tell people in a snapshot, the science is getting scarier. The more we know about climate change, the worse it sounds. But the technology is getting way, way better. That just about every day you hear about innovations of uh, electric cars or solar and wind power and how we can get all our energy from renewables or how we're learning to live a life that doesn't involve so much energy, that we can gain satisfaction and value in our lives uh, without the crazy pace that we are currently involved in. So I, I see a technological path, and I see 
a growing sense of community that we want to get there. And I see a growing sense politically, especially with the Paris Agreement, that the countries are committed to moving along that path. The question is, how fast are we going to do it? And what about you, Judy? You know, living on with the shore in front of you rising, are you optimistic? Are you mainly fearful? What's your outlook for the future? I'm not particularly optimistic, but I actually I tend to be optimistic in general. I just feel that we have to do what we can. And even if it ends up being a totally lost cause, I still have to do it. I still have to work at doing whatever I can. Well, you heard it, folks, both from Shelley Tannenbaum and Judy Lum. We've got to do it. It's our calling. It's Even if it's a 10% chance that we're going to survive, are we going to lie down or are we going to get up and put our shoulders to the wheel? So whether it's 10% or whether it's 60% or whether it's 3%, we don't know. It's, it's really hard to figure these things out. It's daunting in any case. And even if it was the most daunting, if it was 10%, if it was 2%, we still have to do the work that we've got to do. So we've been talking to two people, both Shelley and Judy, who are putting their shoulders to the wheel. Shelley was at the Paris Agreements in December of 2015. Judy's been participating there regularly, and one little sign of hope is what a worldwide gathering of Quakers said about the imperative to move forward. The kind of struggle that's going to be difficult for all of the people of the world to step into. But each group that makes this change and then follows through, there's one greater ray of hope for the future. So I appreciate both the work that you're both doing for Quaker Earth Care Witness, that you're doing for the world by being part of the COP 15 and 16 and COP 21, all of, all of this machinery of the world that's going to get us in a sane direction. So thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for taking your time at this busy conference, the Friends General Conference, where we're meeting to spend this time with me here today. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you. And Shelley, thank you for joining me for the first time, but I'm sure there's more in the future. Thanks mm -hmm. so much for your work. Thanks, Mark. It was great to be here. Today's guests for Spirit in Action have been Shelley Tannenbaum and Judy Lum. I've got multiple links on the northernspiritradio.org website for this program. Among them, there's one to Quaker Earth Care Witness. Find it at quakerearthcare.org. You can find a lot more about Judy and her work at judylum.com. That's J-U-D-Y-L-U-M-B.com. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.